Hey guys, it's Natalie, the Traveling Light, and today I have a very special guest coming on the podcast. Her name is Natalie as well, and she is a diet and binge eating recovery coach. We're going to talk about intuitive eating, binge eating, diet culture, eating psychology, and how we can all start to take steps towards intuitive eating. She's going to educate us on how society has basically shaped the way we view our bodies, the way we view food and pleasure. And you would be surprised that 80% of women, eight out of 10 women are not happy in in their bodies currently. And she's basically going to say, tell us why and educate us and um, give us some pointers. And I just feel so lucky to have had an hour of her time because I also learned so much. We share similar viewpoints on recovery and I just love this podcast so much. So I hope you guys get some information and get inspired and check out her links. Um, She has a freebie ebook that is coming out soon. And she's just basically an encyclopedia of body love and recovery and intuitive eating. And she is incredible. She has a heart of gold. And um, like I said, I couldn't be more excited to have her on the podcast. So let's jump right on in guys. Hi, Natalie. Hi, I'm so honored to be one of your first guests. I'm so excited. I'm born and raised in New York City. Love to live here. Love to leave it. Uh, I grew up, yeah, I grew up in the city, went to uh, San Francisco for culinary school. I worked in the restaurant industry for a bunch of years as a line cook. And then I ended up going into nutrition as a means to kind of heal my body through what it had been through in the restaurant industry. So I was like experiencing lots of inflammation and brain fog and I got to a point where I could hardly even get up to go to the bathroom. It felt like my body was like inflamed from the inside out. Um, And I ended up kind of going down the nutrition path thinking that would heal me and coming up against what I felt at the time were things like sugar addiction and self-sabotaging behaviors, not having much of an idea about eating psychology or my relationship with food or my body image or any of that. And so I just kind of kept hammering into the nutrition and was like, if I learn more, I'll do the right thing. If I learn about how bad sugar is for you, I'll stop eating it. Um, And that of course, spoiler alert, never happened. Uh, And thank goodness I found the world of eating psychology and had a lot of aha moments, got a lot of mentorship, ended up going down that route um, and getting certified in that. And now I am a binge and diet recovery coach and it has changed my life not only doing the work, but um, getting to heal myself around food and body and then now getting to spread it. Oh, wow. Damn, yeah. girl. I didn't know all that. Um, yeah. <laughs> what is um, eating psychology for those that don't know? It's basically just the study of our relationship to food and how we eat and how we relate to uh, how we relate to eating, basically. Wow. 
So how did you turn all of that? Like what inspired you to turn all of your education into um, your mission and your, your career now? I think it was a no brainer. I, I remember telling my dad when I left working in restaurants that I wanted to help people feel good in their bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think that came from a genuine desire of trying to figure that out myself mm-hmm. and not being able to. Yeah. And I looked to the left and I looked to the right and I saw mainly women struggling so hard with being off and on diets forever. It felt like there was never a time where most people around me weren't off and on diets. Um, like cycling through different ones, trying different nutritionists, trying different protocols, um, things like that. And I just thought, okay, like there's gotta be something to this. Why are we all struggling so hard to just do something that should feel innate and intuitive? And I, I, it was a bit of luck and a bit of, you know, hard work and, and exploration on my part, but I ended up finding some wonderful mentors and, uh, the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, which is where I got my certification. Um, and it was just one thing after another. It wasn't ever like a big, you know, oh, this is exactly what I'm going to do. It just, I really put one foot in front of the other. I started doing eating psychology and functional nutrition at first, thinking I wanted to do both together. And then finding that the work I was doing around uh, the mentality work around food and eating were was so much more powerful in changing people's relationship to food than the nutrition itself. So I slowly started to let that go, although that was a struggle because I kind of had my ego in my ear saying, oh, oh, you need to be doing something with nutrition if people are going to take you seriously around their relationship with food. Um, so that was kind of another big step I took was when I finally released the need. I ended up leaving my master's in nutrition halfway through, uh-huh. um, which, yeah, it was like a big moment of like, okay, I'm not going to have an MS. Will I still be creditable, um, in people's eyes? And I had to just follow my heart and my gut, which is that the work that I do will speak for itself and people will talk and, you know, people, I think people really can sense authenticity and connection. And so I just kind of put all of my eggs in that basket. And luckily it's been great and has worked out. Wow. So do you feel like leaving your, um, your education for, uh, like your master's was like a step of like stepping into your self-worth almost? Definitely. Yeah. And really into, I mean, that word is, it's become kind of a, a, a shitty word, like authenticity, but I really felt like it was in alignment, you know? So what I wanted to study, I didn't want to study nutrition. I knew way too much about nutrition and it wasn't helping me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually a very common thing that a lot of people end up in diet and binge cycling because they know too much about nutrition and they aren't able to listen to their own intuition around food. And I remember when I first left the uh, the restaurant industry, I was, my digestion was totally shit. There was like uh, it, it was crazy. I had like ravaged my gut, um, taking lots of antibiotics over the years and just eating like nothing but bread all day because I was so, um, there was nothing around me to eat and I had no time. And I was, you know, smoking cigarettes a bit at that time and drinking beer every day. And it was just a mess. So I turned to what I thought were quote unquote healthy foods. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would have like wake up in the morning in November when it was cold out and have like a 12 ingredient 
frozen smoothie. And then I'd have like a sweet green quinoa bowl, all raw foods for lunch. And I had no energy. I felt like terrible. And I was like, but I'm being healthy. I'm being Mm -hmm. healthy. Why don't I feel good? Um, And then when I met one person who started to tell me to follow my intuition around food, I remember waking up one morning and being like, I just want broth. I just want bone broth. Um, so for a couple of weeks, I just had bone broth and cooked vegetables, um, and then started to feel much better with my gut. And then I started to, then, but then I would find myself face first in like a bag of cookies and I didn't understand. I was like, I just felt so good. Why did I do this to myself? What do I hate myself? What's going on? So that was kind of the next step. It's like, okay, I know there's something to this intuition around food yet. I am not there. I cannot follow it a hundred percent of the time and what, what's going on there. And yeah, that took a lot of self-discovery and, and mentorship and coaching and eventually I did. Wow. I mean, I, there's so many things I would want to say to that, but I almost feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that this cycle of eating um, is a little bit, kind of, well, for me, I can only speak from my experience. It's a little bit of like an addiction in a way that like, I, I couldn't, um, understand like that, like I couldn't understand why I was turning to binging after I had Mm -hmm. just, you know, done so much work to feeling good again. And so, yeah, I can, yeah, I can really see how it would feel like an addiction. Cause like I said, I was convinced that I had a sugar addiction. Mm -hmm. And if anyone tried to tell me that a sugar addiction isn't real, um, you know, or any of that, I would get like viscerally upset and defensive because it felt so real in my experience, Mm -hmm. felt compulsive. Um, and to me, the compulsion in my mind equaled addiction, Yeah. And now what I know about, um, just how the brain works in relationship to restriction is we are not, we are not built for restriction. So when we feel, so first I'll kind of go back to why does anyone diet in the first place? Yeah. Um, usually it's because we hate our bodies, right? Or there's something we want to change about our bodies. Namely, we want to get smaller. So if you are relating your food choices to the desire to change your body, and then we go back a step further, why do you feel that you need to change your body? Well, that's really where the underlying sort of crux of the situation is because if you don't feel that your body is safe, that is a, a, you're living in a state of fight or flight, right? If you don't feel like in your body, you will receive love, respect, safety. I mean, that is a primal fear of survival, right? And that becomes your be all and end all. Like I don't feel safe in my body. I will do anything to feel safe in my body. And what that means in our society, unfortunately, I think that's starting to change, but what it generally means is looking thin, thinner or thin, right? Mm -hmm. So we believe because there's billions of dollars spent convincing us that we can change our body size through manipulation of food and exercise, you know, too, but, but dieting is a billion, billion, billions of dollar industry that is hell bent on 
convincing us that we can and should manipulate our body size and our weight through our food, our diet. So if we don't talk about body image, we're missing so much of the wisdom in why we are having issues in our relationship to food. Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing that I had to confront because I had always prided myself on being confident and not having body, quote unquote, body image issues. And I really, really did. (laughs) I really, really did. I just couldn't even admit it to myself for a while. Yeah. Once I did admit that, it felt so good. It felt like I'd been carrying an 100-pound backpack that I just became so used to. And someone finally said, you know, you can put that down, right? And I was like, what? Put what down? And they're like, that backpack on your back. And I was like, I'm not carrying a backpack. And you're like, and like someone had to like come over, like give me a hug. I had to recognize I had a backpack on, take it off. And then I was like, oh my fucking God, life is so much better without this backpack on. Um, so that was a really exciting moment when I just got to admit it's hard for me living in my body. Um, for many reasons that like we, we all have our own reasons why it's hard, right? Mm -hmm. All women are sort of oppressed when it comes to their body. Um, so especially being, I'm like a tall, bigger person. So I felt it, um, you know, we all feel, feel it on a spectrum and I felt it pretty strongly my whole life. So once I admitted that I had been sort of self-conscious and dieting my entire life without ever you don't have to necessarily be on a labelable diet, right? It's not like I had been doing like Atkins or, um, I mean, I have, I have done like Weight Watchers and worked with nutritionists, but for much of my life, it was things like Whole30 started to creep in, right? Like, can I just avoid um, processed foods and sugar, added sugars and all, you know, all grains and things like that? So I started to be on like pseudo diets all the time. Yeah. And of course, if you are, you know, my meals would consist of kind of whole 30 approved things. And then I would go crazy on dessert. And it was this cycle where I thought, okay, I'm going to go crazy on dessert. So I can't have mac and cheese. I can't have pizza. I can't have pasta. I can't even have croutons in my salad because I'm about to go have three brownies after this, obviously. Right. Yeah. So of course, sugar became so important in my life because it was the one place where I felt like I had freedom to indulge emotionally in my food. And there's only three reasons why anyone ever eats food, physical hunger, emotional hunger, and reactionary eating, which is, um, what we would call, we would think of as binge eating. Okay. And I have to credit Isabel Fox and Duke for that term. She, I believe came up with the term reactionary eating, and that is eating in reaction to diet mentality and restriction. Mm-hmm. So physical hunger, easy to get right. When you're hungry, you eat food. Emotional hunger has nothing to do with binge eating. Actually Think of it as you're at a birthday party with your friends and everyone's having a piece of cake and you're not really hungry, but you're having cake because it's a birthday party, right? Or you're around a campfire and like, you don't really think, am I hungry for a s'more? You just like s'mores, right? Or Halloween, I'm going to have some candy, right? So emotional eating is simply eating for emotional pleasure. And then reactionary eating is where the binge eating comes from. And that is emotional eating can easily turn into reactionary eating if you have a s'more and then you start to freak out that you fell off the wagon. Mm -hmm. And so you have four more, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not even about the amount at all. It's about the intention and the energy behind the decision and the act of the eating. Okay. 
So would you say like, um, people that are, you know, and there's nothing wrong with this people that are super stressed out about Corona right now, that would be reactionary or emotional Mm. turn reaction. That's a really good question. So another interesting thing, and I'll, I'll kind of roundabout answer that question. Um, another interesting thing about food is if you understand that the body has two nervous system, um, like protocols that it can be in, it can be in fight or flight, or it can be in rest and digest. Um, and when we are overly in fight or flight, which a lot of us are right now, um, and we just kind of are in our daily lives with our phones, you know, constantly beeping and just so much to do all the time. So fight or flight can really be any time where you're not feeling really relaxed, where you're taking like deep breaths. Um, you know, obviously when you're sleeping, you're in rest and digest, but hopefully when you're eating, although most of us aren't, um, so one of the ways that your body sort of tricks you into, into rest and digest when it needs a break is to overload yourself with food, to eat a ton of food, um, because you are forced then to rest so that your body can digest wow. the amount of food that you just put in it. So it is actually a terrific coping mechanism uh-huh. when you aren't giving yourself the opportunity to enter rest and digest enough your body is really smart and it wants to protect you from being overloaded and having too much cortisol and, and adrenaline and pumping out this, you know, constant stress hormones. It wants you to relax. And so if you aren't taking the measures to do so, it will take the measures for you wow. and it will ask you to eat a lot of food. Yeah. And that's tricky because that can be, again, like slip easily into reactionary eating because you can start to freak out about the fact that you're eating when you're maybe not. Right. And so it is, um, it's a kind of a gray area to be honest, but I would have to, I would invite everyone to think of this as actually a beautiful thing that your body does with its own innate wisdom Mm -hmm. and a great sort of sign that maybe there's some room to set aside time for you to enter rest and digest without your body sort of needing to take over for you, um, for your mind. So it's not a problem, right? Like we don't want to label stress eating as a problem because guess what that's going to do? Create more stress, right? It's just something that happens when our body's innate wisdom knows that it needs to calm down. Could also be that you're hungry. Could also be that, you know, the studies have shown that in times of emotional duress, people who have been on diets turn towards food, whereas people who have never had diet mentality, which is a very small percentage of the population, but they exist, um, lose their appetite. Wow. So it is um, really just a sign that, you know, it's, it's a way to read ourselves better. And I believe that every decision around food, there's an opportunity to get to know yourself through that decision. You don't have to, I certainly don't at this point, um, think much about it, but sometimes I do when I'm in certain situations I've never been in before. Um, then I kind of bring out the question mark and I have like a conversation with myself around what's happening so that I can get to know myself better. So, um, would you say like, as you're going through this new awareness of, um, kind of just healing your mentality around food and your body, would you say a lot of it is just having conversations with yourself in that present moment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with my clients, we do a lot of journaling. 
Um, the number one journal that I start every single client on is writing a letter from your mind to your body and then back from your body to your mind. And I have yet to have any person that I work with not have a huge aha moment from doing that journal, myself included. Yeah. It was one of the most powerful moments in my recovery. Um, and when I say recovery, I refer to diet and binge recovery, um, that, that I is invaluable. So opening up that line of communication when for so long, most likely your, your head has been in charge Mm -hmm. and your body has just been along for the ride. Um, opening up that line of communication to create a more cohesive, just like it is if you were in a relationship with another person, if you don't have that open line of communication with yourself, it's going to feel like a dictatorship and like a rebellion constantly. Right. And that's kind of what diet and binging is. It's like your brain dictating to your body and then your body being like, hell no. And kind of fighting back and rebelling. Wow. Um, so do you find like energetically speaking that your work kind of bridges the gap between the mind and the body and almost the spirit too, because that's, Mm. is that what's kind of missing here with people that are in this state? hundred percent. It is missing. There's an element of spirituality. You don't have to have it, but it is very helpful to have some sort of spiritual practice. Um, it doesn't have to be every day. It doesn't even have to be every week, but just to kind of have this sort of larger, because the truth is I sort of see spirituality these days as like synonymous with surrendering. Ooh, I like that. And the truth is that we do not have control. We don't have control over the weight that our body feels healthiest at. Mm -hmm. We don't really have control over what we eat. And that is something that is very hard for a lot of people to sort of understand and accept because it's like, what do you mean? Of course I have control over what I eat. Um, But if you look back on your relationship with food, you'll find that there's probably a lot of moments where you felt out of control, right? And the ironic thing is that the more that you accept this lack of control, the more in control and intuitive you feel. And that is the number one thing that I hear from people who come to me is I just want to feel more in control of my food. I don't want to feel out of control. And it's, it's a funny catch 22, but when you finally release the desire to control your food, which again goes back to the desire to control your body, 99% of the time people will say it's for health reasons. I have an autoimmune disorder. Guess what? Me too. Same thing, right? I went through the same thing. My um, legalization period, which is the period in which you heal your scarcity trauma around food. So for me, it was things like white flour and sugar and things that I had sort of demonized for so long. I had to go through a legalization abundance period where I was including those things in my life in an abundant way to sort of take them off the pedestal Mm. that they had been on for so long. Um, And my body was going through, it it was struggling. I was having back to kind of having that inflammation that I had when I was in the restaurant industry. And, um, I saw it as the opportunity for my body to kind of take one for the team in favor of my mind and my emotional relationship to food healing. Yeah. And that was a huge kind of shift for me. Cause for a while I was like, why can't I just stop eating stuff that makes me feel like shit? Like, why can't I just do that? Um, but I started, started to accept that that's just not how the brain works. And I ends up learning, you know, all about why that is. But at the time when I was going through my own recovery with my own coach, I 
started to just do whatever I could to support my body through that. So again, drinking bone broth, collagen, probiotics, warming foods, um, whenever, whatever I could do to support my immune system through that and acknowledge that I didn't really have control. Like I had to go through my legalization phase as long as it took me. I knew there would be a light at the end of the tunnel. I felt it. It felt exciting. It felt new. It felt different than all of the diets I had done for so long. It felt like freedom. Yeah. You know, my energy was rising, even though, um, I, you know, my body felt terrible and I, cr- I broke down. I cried to my mom a couple of times. Um, but I knew it was the right thing to do. And I'm so glad that I stuck with it because once you have that breakthrough, y- you just get it. And then you're like, yeah. okay, I'm never going back there again. Um, I forgot where this was going, but yeah. Oh, just, you know, just in general, like most of the time there's also this sort of hidden, um, if you're, if you're saying it's for health reasons, it is, but it's also, there's also usually a desire to lose weight alongside of that. Yeah. So although I would do cold on cold thirties and tell people it's not about the weight, I really just feel so much more clear headed and energized. And that was true, but it also was about losing bloating and weight and whatever. So if you don't acknowledge that piece, which a lot of coaches are lacking, I find, um, because I've worked with many of them, <laughs> there is, um, there's always, go, you're always going to go fall back into that yeah. trap because you don't have the tools to work through being triggered about your weight or your body image. And so the, your body's, your brain's going to resort to, okay, I need to go on some kind of diet and restriction here. Yeah. I, I find like my, uh, recovery is a little bit similar in that I, I took like a year off from like healthy, like quote unquote healthy eating. And I just let myself eat like pizza with my friends or if they wanted a salad, you know, like I started to actually involve myself in eating out with friends. Cause I used to not do that. I was afraid. I was like, Oh, I'm going to get fat. I'm if I go, I'm just going to have a salad or something. But I started like actually like enjoying life. And now because I gave myself the freedom to do and eat whatever I want. Um, and same with alcohol, I did the same thing. I was like, if I want to drink, I'm going to drink with my friends, like have a couple glasses. Cause I used to be afraid to even have wine at dinner with my friends. Cause it would make mm-hmm. quote unquote, make me fat. So I did like a year, a year and a half like that. And now I'm able to, you know, do a detox for my liver for Lyme disease and not be obsessed and not be like, it's time to get skinny. Like I'm still eating like three hearty meals, but I'm also including like detox remedies. And it's not, I'm not in the energy of like mirror checking myself or checking what size I am right now. You know, I'm just taking care of myself. And it's so, so great. That's so beautiful. And I mean, ideally we would all get to a place where it'd be so easy to check in with our bodies, see what feels good, and then just make that decision from that sort of pure place. Um, and that takes everyone a different amount of time. If you are on your path to recovery, it can take you six months. It can take you years. It really depends on I think like the support you're getting and your own ability to kind of surrender again into that. And I think the crux of it is knowing that if you did slip up from your liver detox, you wouldn't beat yourself up about it so much. Right. You wouldn't say like, Oh my God, you're a piece of shit. I can't believe you can't stick to this. Right. (laughs) Like this abusive person in your brain is no longer there. 
And so that's also a part of like self-love, spirituality, um, doing the deeper work, which is why I love what I do because it is so about getting down to, down to it. You know, we really talk about where your blocks are with that, whether that's from your relationship with your mom, which I would say about 70 to 80% of the time it's around there. Um, yeah. And like, you know, or an ex-boyfriend or your dad or a sibling or, you know, sometimes a combination of all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really cool to see people have these aha moments where they're recognizing that it's actually not coming from them. Mm-hmm. It's a learned response. It's a learned behavior. It's being subliminally conveyed to us nonstop. And so there is a portion of where there's a time period where a lot of people on their recovery are like, holy shit, I didn't realize like how much everyone around me is constantly talking about body stuff, food stuff, dieting, weight, um, you know, all of it. And so there's a moment where you're like, oh my God, I like ripped the bandaid off and now I'm just seeing all of this. Um, but you, you used to it. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Is that diet culture? Like, yes, okay. yes. So diet, I'm exactly. I ask you about that. Like what is diet culture? And like, we are all, it's in our face every day and we're, we're just used to it. Right. <sighs> yes. Um, so I'm actually today, so random coincidence, I am releasing a book called, or it's like a small ebook called, um, guide to being an ally for those in recovery from, um, diet mentality basically. And that just covers like absolutely everything that you could possibly hear or say that falls into the category of diet culture. And I think it's really helpful because so many of my clients, like their loved ones do not know Mm -hmm. that they're saying something triggering right? They don't know that by telling them, are you sure you want that? Mm-hmm. Um, aren't you full? Maybe also have a salad. You know, they don't realize that they're not helping, that they're actually hurting the situation because it's coming from a loving place. And you think, you know, I don't even fault my own mom who, when I was in high school and struggling, you know, with loving my body, she would kind of bring up um, when she thought that I was kind of getting bigger or asked me if I wanted to start doing like a certain workout because in her mind, in the world we lived in, my body wasn't safe. Like I was going to be judged or, um, like not as accepted as someone who lived in a different body. So she was coming from a place of wanting her daughter to be and feel a certain way and not understanding that I actually would have felt that way more if she had led by example in that department and told me that I was gorgeous no matter what and all that stuff. Right. But in her experience, she was having her own diet trauma, um, body image trauma that was kind of thrust upon me. And that's something that it's so important to recognize is that we're all just walking around, like throwing our trauma on each other. (laughs) And it's so important to realize that it never comes from a, like everyone's doing the best they can and everyone is coming from their own lived experience. Yeah. So this guide is meant to just give people a little bit of a more uh, of an understanding of things that they could say that would maybe be better or ways to even understand why do I even feel the need to say this to someone? Like, yeah. why do I even need to praise someone's weight loss as if it's inevitably inherently a good thing? Totally. Um, yeah. It's so not I'm excited only- about that. Yeah. What's it called again? It is called the guide to being an ally. Um, 
I'm playing around with a couple different wordings. So I will send that to you and you can maybe add it in the show yeah, notes. Definitely. It's totally free. It's just going to be a PDF yeah. um, for people. And it really came out of me being tired of educating all the people in my life and feeling like my clients were um, also feeling frustrated to have to go to like a family event and tell their like second cousin once removed why they didn't enjoy being praised for their weight loss or even, or their food being commented on. Right. So I just want people to be able to just disseminate this information without being like, Hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And Mm -hmm. even blame it on me, right? Like, Oh, here, my friend made this, this book. I think it could be cool for you to, to flip through. It's like a six page guide. Um, really just kind of basic stuff, but I'm, I'm hoping that it starts a kind of domino effect or we start to realize that commenting the word I see all the time on Instagram, people just writing like body on someone's, um, post, maybe they're in a bathing suit or they're in a tight dress and someone just say body. And it's like, (laughs) what are you saying? Like, exactly. I, I mean, yeah, I got news for people. Like when I was the sickest with Lyme disease, I was like a size four or six and the picture that, and you know, I'm in a bikini top and shorts and I just posted it. It was last year and I was in like a really heavy lime flare up in that photo, but people were DMing me like, Oh, body goals. Oh, your body. And you know, what I should write on there is maybe I will go back and be like, just so you know, like just because somebody's skinny, or whatever looks fit does not mean that they're healthy. You know what I mean? Cause like I'm way healthier now, but I'm a couple sizes bigger. So a lot of times people think they're complimenting you, but really they don't really even know what's going on in your life. Yeah. It's very dangerous to compliment someone's body size. Um, my dad, a couple months ago, he told me he saw a friend who, um, lost a bunch of weight and he was like, wow, you look great. And he's like, well, stage three cancer will do that for you. Exactly. You know? So it's like, you, you just, uh, you just never know. Yeah. And it's really, again, your own personal biases and, and body sort of stuff coming out. So yeah, I, I think the conversation around this stuff is getting louder, which I'm really excited about. And we just, especially as women need to have it more because it informs our entire way of relating to ourselves and to our food, which, you know, we eat at least, you know, three times a day. Um, so the women that I work with, they, they, they'll say like food and body stuff take up 80% plus of their thoughts every day. Right. And that's really common, really common. So imagine, like imagine a world in which, I mean, this is like a secret, like intense oppressor that women are, I mean, it's not so secret, but I think we're not really addressing how large scale and how just heavy of a weight it is on all of our like mental health and shoulders. And people will just, um, put their lives on hold, lives on hold if they're not feeling good about the weight that they're at. You know, they won't want to go on the dates. They won't want to go to the parties. They won't want to show up and, and feel confident in their careers. So yeah. And more than just, it's more than just like stopping your late night cookie, you know, addiction. It is. Yeah. I feel like the action is almost the, the aftermath of what's really going on. Um, Definitely. When I work on people and they have like, um, 
first of all, when I'm doing Reiki on somebody and say they do have food and Im- body image issues or eating past eating disorder or any of the things we're talking about, um, I always feel like their mind and their body isn't connected. And I also feel like the pleasure chakra is super blocked. Mm. So um, I, w- I was curious to see like if your clients, like say they move through your coaching or, or your program, do they find like once they're healed or almost healed or on the path of healing that they make space for more pleasure in their life? Mm, I love that. Uh, that makes so much sense that you're, you're picking up on that with people. And I actually notice, you know, there's just like a way people like are in their bodies. And I notice a lot of times when my clients first come to me, they, they don't feel comfortable. Like I can tell that they are not embodied. Mm-hmm. Right. And then within a few weeks or a few months, they feel, they feel to me like they almost like fill up their body with energy in such a new way. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do embodiment practices too. But to your question about pleasure, the brain is hardwired to feel pleasure more than any other feeling. Oh, like we are literally walking around pleasure receptors more than we are like anything else. (laughs) That's amazing. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I love that fact. Um, and so when, again, when we are deficient in pleasure, our, our body will sort of like use food in a way where it's trying to feel that pleasure. But because we are stressed around food, because we're feeling triggered around food, um, that stress sort of blocks the pleasure receptors. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like this wind up doll that's just faced towards a wall. Like, constantly banging into the wall trying to get somewhere and it doesn't realize that it's being blocked so that is also why you know sometimes we are like I just want one cookie and then we end up eating the whole whole bag I mean there's there's a lot of nuance around that but it can sometimes be that we're really craving and and deficient and pleasure and we're just trying to get this pleasure from this cookie but we're stressed because we don't feel like we are allowed to have this cookie and so we're just constantly trying to get that pleasure and coming back to it and back to it. Um, so yeah, I think that there is definitely, once you heal your trauma around dieting and food and you get to actually be present with your cookie without feeling all the scared, you know, the kind of fear and guilt that might come along with it, you actually have the ability to receive a lot more pleasure from your food. Um, without the stakes, like, right. Like this, like, it's almost like it's the same with sex, right? If you're feeling stressed around a sexual encounter, it's very hard to feel pleasure. Yeah. Right. Like men can't even get like hard when they're feeling stressed, right? They have like a physical manifestation of being blocked from their pleasure. Um, so yeah, when, when we are more relaxed and we feel entitled to this food and we feel abundant in this food and we can kind of sit in our feminine energy, right? Because the feminine is all about receiving Mm -hmm. and the masculine is all about the rules and the regulations and the numbers. Diet culture is completely masculine. It is so inherently masculine. And when I say masculine and feminine, I don't mean men versus women. We both, every person has a mix of masculine and feminine energy, right? Like there are days even when I'm more in my masculine, there's days when I'm more in my feminine. So when we're eating, it's, 
um, it tends to feel more aligned when we are, when we can tap into our feminine energy, both for men and women. So our digestion is like relaxed and we can receive the food and we can let things flow. And, you know, we're not counting our macros and counting our calories. Um, then yeah, the feminine is, is the pleasure. Wow. So, um, would you find with your clients that they're more triggered and I'm assuming your your female clients, um, they're more triggered around, uh, their periods. Cause that was always a big trigger for me. Yeah, definitely can be. Um, everyone, I think these days, especially has such different kind of hormonal things happening, depending on if you're on birth control, whether you're on hormonal or non-hormonal, whether you've been on it for a while. I mean, I feel like every woman is really in their own unique kind of place when it comes to their, their cycle. I know for me, I I've actually only been on birth control a month in my entire life. So I really feel my periods. Um, and I, my, I do feel that my body changes. I do feel like I bloat, I hold on to water. My cramps, um, are, are there. Um, I get very emotional, um, a day or two before I get very nostalgic in a weird way. Um, and so yeah, you too, yes. <laughs> it's funny. I just want to be like in my parents' bed yeah. when I'm like seven years old. <laughs> um, I always tell my mom that in two labs and yeah. So I now with my, you know, healed relationship around food, I'm happy to use food as a comfort. Like yeah. it seems like a really great viable option, right? There's a lot worse things out there that we can turn to for stress relief and comfort. I mean, we're not harming anyone or ourselves. We're not gambling away our money. We're not (laughs) drinking. We're not doing drugs. I mean, maybe you are too, but like eating is not the worst thing you can do. It's a great coping mechanism. It's meant to make us feel safe. Right. So I might come, I might now, um, sort of converge my intuitive eating. That's, that's in a really strong place with the knowing that I want something that's emotionally comforting, right. And the knowledge of how my leaky gut or, you know, immune stuff works. Mm -hmm. And I might then make the decision to have bone broth and then mac and cheese and then make myself like a buckwheat chocolate souffle, right. Or I might just order pizza all day. Like it's up to me. Right. But the cool thing about this work is that it really leads you to understand using the tool of intuitive eating. And that's, I think, a big um, sort of thing to look out for because there's a lot of coaches out there who are intuitive eating coaches. Uh-huh. And intuitive eating is is a tool. It's a tool in which you get to check in with your physical and emotional hunger, understand where it's at. It doesn't mean that your relationship to food and body is healed. It's just a tool that you can okay. use. Um, same with mindful eating, right? Oh my goodness. If someone told me three years ago that I should be mindfully eating all the time, I mean, that would like really trigger me because I wouldn't be doing it. And then I would feel terrible about myself. And then it would just be like, you know, it would kind of make a spiral between between intuitive and mindful. Mm -hmm. Mindful eating is simply the act of paying attention while you're eating. Okay. (laughs) It's like just being present with your food. Okay. Um, I think intuitive eating is more about like the decision, like mindful eating then can inform intuitive eating, right? So Mm -hmm. if I'm like eating completely without distraction, enjoying my bowl of pasta, 
um, it might be easier for me to make an intuitive decision around, do I want cheese with this? Do, am I full? Do I want water? Um, like making that decision where I'm tapping into my intuition, right? If I'm eating in front of the TV and I'm just not thinking about anything, I'm probably just like not really checking in a lot, which is again, fine. I don't mindfully eat all the time. Right. But it's a tool. Um, and you kind of just like with any relationship with another human, you kind of get to know your own like buttons that you can push or, or, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, like, you know, if you know that, when your partner is sad, they really like, if you don't ask them the right question, they might then turn passive aggressive towards you, right? Like there's like things to understand about your partner that you can really see reflected in your relationship with yourself. So if I know that my period's coming up and I get stressed about my body, because by the way, body image stuff doesn't go away. No, it is something to have a relationship with. It's not something to try and eradicate. So I still do a lot of body image work with myself and it's great. And I, I love having, again, the tools to use on myself, for example, when I have my period. Um, and I know that I can be extra sensitive, right? So I will then try and do things that I know will make myself feel good around that time number one thing to do is to let yourself off the hook of anything, right? In in general, let's say I know, okay, when I do, when I sweat around my period, I feel really good. When I do like a light, you know, power walk, um, I feel really good. It helps my cramps. If I don't, if I feel like I don't want to do that, the number one thing that helps in my relationship with myself be easy and loving is to not beat myself up about it. So again, I have these tools at my disposal. I can use my intuition to decide what would feel good. And then I have a really strong, loving, working relationship with myself where I get to have that conversation around what decision I make and how I relate to myself for making that decision. Wow. So I have a few people that follow the traveling light that are eating disordered, like uh, diagnosed And, you know, you and I have talked about labels and how, you know, they don't really necessarily mean anything. Um, I have two questions for you. So, Mm. like, what is the goal of your work? Because it sounds super aligned with what has healed me. And then second, like, how do you see uh, labels in our, you know, medical system, how they can be helpful and also kind of destructive? Mm. Yeah. So the ultimate goal in my work is to give people the healing around food and body trauma so that they can tap into becoming intuitive eaters and never need to diet or want to diet for the rest of their lives. And the ultimate goal is to just reduce that number of thinking about food and body around 80% plus of the day to somewhere below 10%. That is my ultimate goal so that you can live your life and spend your energy on things that feel exciting and good and fill up your life. And food can be a beautiful part of that and body can be a beautiful part of that and not be this part that's kind of sucking your life from you. So that's the ultimate goal um, that I'm happy to say I can, I can see so many of my amazing clients really just flourishing in that arena now. And then, um, when it comes to labels, yeah. So what I think is difficult is, first of all, as I mentioned to you, I didn't identify as a binge eater when I got my treatment for being a binge eater. Um, and 
So I don't want people to get too caught up in what am I because everyone's experience of disordered eating can look different and you can heal in very different in a very different timeline with very different modalities. I think in general, um, all women who have experienced any kind of body image dissatisfaction have a bit of a disordered relationship with food if they don't learn how to process that body image dissatisfaction. And that can, and eating disorders, I'm not trained to, I'm not trained in eating disorder recovery. So if someone comes to me and they present symptoms or they are diagnosed with being anorexic or bulimic, I am happy to be a part of their care team. Mm. Um, but I am not qualified to be the sole practitioner and helping them heal. Um, and, you know, I think there's just a lot of unknowns in, in the fact that they're so prevalent mm-hmm. to me says, I mean, binge eating is the number one eating disorder in America. Mm-hmm. I don't really actually think of it as an eating disorder. I think it's a very healthy response. I mean, it is, it's a healthy response to restriction. Okay. If you are experiencing restriction, whether that's mental or emotion or physical, right, you could be eating the pizza, but you're feeling terribly about it and you feel so guilty and that's sort of emotional restriction. Um, you are going to rebel against that and that is healthy. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that's kind of a, a problem with these labels of like disorder is often mm-hmm. it's your body's healthy response to your lifestyle and your way of processing things. Yeah. And I, what I realized is a lot of disorders are responses Um, like PTSD is just a response to trauma and, Mm -hmm. you know, even sometimes anxiety can be a biochemical response. So instead of, you know, labeling ourselves as these sick, disordered people, I wish, you know, it was, you know, more common for doctors to just explain to their patients, we're all just responding to something. Yes. Yeah. I call it a processing issue. Yeah. (laughs) Um, instead of like an addiction, like I don't believe that there's such thing as food addiction because the thing about food is like, we're all born having a natural intuitive relationship with food. Mm -hmm. That's not the case with things like alcohol and drugs. Like sometimes that's not something that's necessarily meant to be an everyday part of our lives. So those things I think can more fall into a category of addiction at times. Whereas food is, is, is a processing issue that comes from without, not from within. Um, so when, you know, I have, I take real issue with like food addiction, anonymous kind of programs, because I think that labeling yourself as an addict in those situations um, really chains you mm-hmm. into an identity that makes it really hard to climb out of. And if that has helped anyone listening, then great, right? Like to each their own sort of, but from my experience, um, it can sometimes do more harm than good to identify as being an addict and think that you have to stay away from something for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Of course not food, but like, for example, with my sugar quote unquote addiction, I was working with a coach at one point who told me that I would never be able to have sugar or flour in my life ever again. Um, because I was an addict. Right. (laughs) And so for two months of my life, I tried tooth and nail to cut that, cut those things out. And what happened was I just came back with a vengeance. Right. And so, oh my goodness, like if I were still in that headspace, 
I would be living in constant fear every day. Mm -hmm. I would be stressing out every time I had to go out to eat with someone or a birthday came around or a Saturday came around. I mean, like it was living in constant fear of this thing that I felt had this power over me. Totally. So I just hope in, in being diagnosed, um, we all have to be our own advocates for our health and our bodies. And so I believe that anything that disempowers you isn't going to necessarily lead to your ultimate level of health Mm -hmm. and vibration, you know, highest vibration. I think that understanding yourself, your biological processes, your mental processes, um, and working with someone who gives you more agency, which that to me is what a coach does, right? Like a coach doesn't play on the field with you. A coach is there from the sidelines, giving you options for how to maybe try a shot differently, you know, make picking you up when you're feeling defeated, asking you, you know, give, just giving you the tools to go out there and play your best life. You shouldn't need a coach for the rest of your life, right? The idea is that you become um, your own coach in your mind. And I mean, I believe in always getting support. I will, I always work with like a therapist or a coach or something. Um, but I just think that, that there's a real opportunity in the coaching field versus I, I was in therapy for many, 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 many years. And I would say that working with a coach changed my life in a fraction of the time that therapy did. Right. And I think that they each have their own benefits mm-hmm. and, um, working with therapists led me to probably being a much more open and self-aware person. So that by the time I did work with a coach, it was much, it was very easy for me to understand kind of my own reactions to things and, and all of that, but taking, giving, working with someone who asks, knows how to ask the right questions and give you the right kind of prompts of things to try, um, is so valuable in becoming your own greatest yeah. coach and having that agency in your life. Yeah. I love that you are basically teaching other people to be their own healers. Um, because yeah. you know, we're the ones making the choices, you know, we're not rely. You can't be there with somebody all day, every day. So when you empower people to go within and really learn about themselves and create this awareness, that's, you're really, really changing lives. Like that is so cool. Thank you. Yeah. I love it. It lights me up. I have to say, I can't imagine doing anything else. It's, it's so fun. It's, it's, it's all the things, but at the end of the day, getting to see someone embrace their life in a way where like I experienced the same thing where I was, I felt like I was living my life in a cage. Mm -hmm. The door was open the whole time. I just had no idea how to walk through it. Finally being led through it and being opening my eyes to this freedom and this energy and this world that was so much more open to me now um, getting to see people go through that process and kind of hold their hand through it is so freaking cool. Just like when you see a movie or, or you hear a band that you're like, I can't wait to have, everyone needs to see this movie. Everyone yeah. needs to listen to this band. Aww. And you just feel so good when the person next to you is like, Oh my God, this is so good. Like that's how I feel wow. getting to work with my clients. It's so beautiful. It's, it's such a sign. Like it's what you're supposed to be doing that. It's like lighting you up, you know? Yeah. Um, do, do you feel like younger girls are most impressionable to diet culture? And do you feel like social media is really harming to, to younger girls? Harmful? Um, 
You know, I don't know because it's not really my age range that I work with. Like I, I work with 22 and up. Um, here's the thing about social media is again, it's a tool, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you curate your social media, so something that's really important to understand is the brain works in a way where if you see something enough times, your brain will assume that that is, that thing is, excuse me, that thing is right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how like, um, Munchausen syndrome or is that no that's not the wrong that's wrong the thing where like there's like there's a you you like fall in love with the person who keeps you captive yeah oh I forgot it's escaping me Stockholm Stockholm syndrome yeah Stockholm syndrome so Stockholm syndrome and and marketing advertising like that's how they are effective it's just getting in front of your eyeballs like this thing being in front of you enough times or you hearing something enough times Mm -hmm. that your brain just eventually gets to a place where it's like that's the right thing right so if you grow up in an in a community where you're seeing one kind of body type oops I just lost you two things. If you see a body type, that's not like yours. If you only see these thin kind of airbrushed women who somehow don't have cellulite or stretch marks everywhere, you're going to look in the mirror every day and be like, you're a piece of shit. Like how you weren't lucky to be born with this beautiful body. Like you have to try everything in your wheelhouse to get there. Right. Um, when I started doing body image work, one of the best things I did was completely like really harshly edit out my social media for anyone that made me feel, and I had to get really honest with myself here, that made me feel less than and actively adding in more women who looked like me or who were just in different sizes, shapes, colors of bodies so that I realized that there is not just one beautiful body type. Yeah. And at first it was weird. Like at first I honestly would look at a woman who had cellulite and stretch marks and kind of be turned off by it. Yeah. And after, I think it was like a six week period. I remember waking up one day, like getting out of bed, wearing like a bra under or catching myself in the mirror and be like, damn, like I was all of a sudden feeling myself um, because I was following women who looked more like me, who were like rocking it, you know, Mm -hmm. like the Ashley Grahams of the world. And Mm -hmm. I just felt like all of a sudden I could be a model, honestly. (laughs) Um, it's and funny, that, like, yeah. you know, just being really conscious of the, the stuff you're taking in can change so much. I told one girl on my Instagram feed just for like a month, maybe two months, take down your full body mirror. You know, I had to do that for longer than two months, but that really, really helped me along with not really looking at Instagram. And if I was, I was just looking at people that were into other things, um, like that were making a difference that inspire me. And those two Mm -hmm. things were really, really helpful. Amazing. Yeah. It's mental hygiene, you know? Um, and listen, you can always go back and follow those people, right? Like sometimes I've needed to take a break from certain influencers and sometimes I'm, I feel fine looking at them. Right. So you get to decide that, but it's, it's also really helpful to have someone kind of guide you through things that you wouldn't really think about, right? Like asking you the tough questions of like, when you close your Instagram app, 
what, what emotions do you feel? Like what vibrations do you feel? What do you want to feel when you look at that? And so then when I was doing my big edit, I would like just kind of tune into each person that I was following. Um, obviously with like certain people, like friends or family, I was like, whatever, but with certain influencers, I'd be like, what energy do I feel after I look at their feet? Yeah. Um, and then being kind of like cutthroat around, unfollowing and like it's not you know again you can always follow it back but it's very social media has the power it's very powerful Mm -hmm. um so I think just really respecting that it is powerful in your relationship to how you see yourself your body image uh and using it as a tool for healing yeah I love that and I think you know, once you start to become aware, you really can start to use these things and they'll stop hurting you. And they'll like Instagram now inspires me because I follow people like you and like just women who are more conscious and spiritual. And it, I like it now, but before when I was just following models, I was like, Oh my God, I am torturing myself. Yes. Don't torture yourself. (laughs) I know it's so it's so addicting and it's so enticing to kind of follow someone that like looks what you're trained to think of as like visually beautiful. Um, like, you know, Emily Ratajkowski and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but really recognizing that this is like social training totally. and you have the ability to change your definition of beauty, um, just like different cultures. And actually I'm going to plug this book, Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison. Uh, it just came out. It's a wonderful book. And she really starts off by explaining where thin privilege and fat phobia and Mm -hmm. diet culture came from. Um, And it has like very racist roots to it. And it's really interesting to see how kind of capitalism capitalized on this and where it came from and like the fear mongering and um, highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in this. It's, it's, it's a very comprehensive book okay. about breaking up with diet mentality and diet culture. Um, and she has a great podcast as well, Christy Harrison. So yeah. I'll link that in the show notes for sure. Um, I guess I will ask you one more question because yeah. <laughs> Or definitely, like, I feel like I'm getting everything I can out of you. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Good, juicy um, Yeah, so what would you tell somebody who is really, really struggling right now? Like, mm-hmm. say they're binging and then they're starving and then they're just in this cycle of just self-hate and mm-hmm. living in fear. You're not alone. This is not a you problem. Mm-hmm. It's a society problem. Like I said, binge eating is the number one eating disorder in the U.S. And just eating disorder prevalence in general is so high. And so I think connecting with other women, that's why I do a group program that more so than one-on-one. I love my group program because getting to experience the healing with other women who are, you know, you feel like you're the only person in the world going through it when you wake up and look in the mirror and are triggered by what you see, right? You're like, I am wrong. I am the only person that is just doesn't deserve to be here or whatever the thought may be. Right. And it's like, when you realize, when you hear from other women who are going through the exact same thing as you, and you look at them and you see their worth and their beauty, and you think, how could they be thinking this about themselves? Mm -hmm. You start to understand that it's not about you. 
it is a brainwashing societal issue and flaw. Um, so I would say connect with other women, find groups. I mean, I really would say if you have the means, find a coach um, who is really trained in the exact issues that you're dealing with because you have the ability to change your life within like weeks. I mean, I had years and years and years of this and like I felt I, I wasn't fully healed, but I felt huge shifts happen within weeks. Wow. So this doesn't have to be um, a long and exhausting road to recovery. You can feel differently soon. So listening to the podcast like Christy Harrison, um, I think there's a, a body society is another one. Um, I have one called love your body. It's not just about food and body, but we do talk about that. Um, really, really exposing yourself to different conversations around food and body and seeing that it doesn't have to be this way. And you, you are, it's not you. It's not you. I love that. That's really something we, I think every woman can really benefit from this. Cause like you said, like, isn't it like 80% of women are experiencing diet culture and yeah I mean it's some it's some ridiculously exorbitantly high number like that for sure yeah cool all right so where can we find you and like if somebody would want to work with you and dive into your work how could we do that yeah super easy my Instagram handle is just my name Natalie's Ices and my uh website is also just my name and I have lots of info on my website as well, nataliesices.com. Um, and you can always DM me, you can message me on my website for any questions or, you know, any support. I'm just thrilled to talk about this stuff whenever as much as possible, because it needs to be talked about more. Totally. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I learned so much today. Yay. It's such a light. Like I wish I would have gotten to work with you when I was a lot younger. Oh, I love so you. Neither. I know. I, I Listen, I wish I did this work when I was yeah. in high school too. Maybe we'll, we'll start a program for youth around this. Yeah, totally. 